We're continuing our study through Galatians in our series, There is One Gospel, and we're reminded from last Sunday's passage, Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus' salvation by his death and resurrection is divine. That the gospel is not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, from start to finish. That salvation offered by God is not man's doing, not by our good works, not by our merits, but solely by grace through faith in Christ alone. Amen? Hence, we were challenged that any departure from the purity of it is, in the words of Paul in Galatians 1.8, and then again in verse 9, anathema, to be eternally condemned. Paul says there is simply no other gospel, even if we, as an apostle himself, or even an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, contrary to the one you received, Paul says, let him be accursed. There is no softer way to put it. As I illustrated last Sunday, you don't warn people from grave and imminent danger by whispering, watch out, be careful. You just simply don't do that. No, you make sure they hear you loud and clearly, even sharply as necessary. Paul was teaching of the uncompromising, unadjustable significance of the gospel. He was warning of the dangers of departing from the gospel. Paul was teaching the Galatian Christians who are being influenced by these men called the Judaizers who are attacking Paul's credibility as an apostle and leading young Galatian Christians away from orthodoxy to heresy by their false teaching. They were imposing that to be a true Christian, they must not only believe in the gospel, but that they should submit to the requirements of the Jewish laws of circumcision and other purity laws. They were injecting cultural religiosity as a requirement for salvation. Of course, we know that Christ had fulfilled the law, that the point of all of the Mosaic law was that the promised Messiah would be the fulfillment of God's covenant to his people. And so Paul corrected and warned the Galatian Christians and warns us today that so many so-called false gospels are exactly that, false, not true, lies and deception, anathema, path to death and damnation, that gospel plus anything, gospel plus good works, Gospel plus social justice, gospel plus racial justice, gospel plus conservatism, gospel plus progressivism, gospel plus even an ounce of human effort is not the gospel. Just as I illustrated last week, you mix a drop of poison into a cup of water. How many of you guys will say, yeah, I'll drink that? No, it's no longer drinkable water because it's toxic. Christ's finished work on the cross, His sinless life, His substitute death, His resurrection and ascension and return is sufficient to save, sufficient to persevere one's faith from beginning to end. As Pastor Tim Keller says, the gospel is not merely the ABCs of Christianity, but the A through Z. As I shared last Sunday, you can see why Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, loved the epistle to the Galatians. After wrestling for many years as a Roman Catholic monk, he wrestled with the idea of how such a wretched sinner like himself would be ever found acceptable to a holy God. He once wrote, When I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with daily sacrifice, tortured myself with fastings and vigils and prayers and other very rigorous work. I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. Close quote. 
But you know what happened, right? But upon studying the scriptures for himself, studying Romans and Galatians, a cataclysmic revelation, the truth of the scriptures that's been there all along, that Jesus Christ is indeed all-sufficient Savior, that Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's requirements, that his work on the cross fully and finally paid the debt once and for all, that Christ's righteousness was gifted to us. And since then, it's told, Luther threw off his monkish robes, drank a fresh pint of German beer, responsibly, of course, and married his wife, Catherine von Bora, and never again subjected himself to such meaningless man-made monkery. Brothers and sisters, Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. 1 John 5, 3 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, there is no guessing game. There is no uncertainty about the Christian faith. There is assurance. There is hope. There is truth. And those who know this gospel testifies with Apostle Paul in Galatians 10, For am I now trying to please man, even myself? If I were still to trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so like Paul... Like Luther, those of us who have tasted and seen that Christ is the good and gracious Savior, live our lives not to please man, not to please ourselves, but to please God alone. As loyal servants of Christ, He is our sovereign King, knowing that we have already obtained His righteousness and His peace and His life in Him. But how does such realization, how does such transformation happen? What is it about the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes depraved and grievous and anxious sinners from looking and living to ourselves to looking and living for Him? The answer is regeneration. It's the biblical idea of being born again into newness of life according to 1 Peter 1.3. It's being made into a new creation as according to 2 Corinthians 5.17 and Galatians 6.15. In our passage this afternoon from Galatians 1, 11 through 24, Paul recalls his testimony, the testimony of his own transformation. These verses contain the longest and the richest autobiographical source from Paul regarding his background, conversion, and his early ministry activity. And this entire section and the prominence it holds in the structure of Galatians as it occupies nearly one-fourth of the book underscores the fact that Christianity is in fact a historical faith. It's not made up, you see. Christianity is based on certain specific, irreversible, irreducible historical events that actually happened. Within just months of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, Paul, who had been a persecutor of Christians, turns into a preacher of Christ. Paul turns from a terrorist of the church to an evangelist of the gospel. It is an incredible testimony. What happened? And why was this event so significant in church history? In order to answer these questions, I want to answer the overarching question which serves as the main theme of this passage. What are the evidences of genuine regeneration? What are the evidences of genuine regeneration? Here's the outline so you know what's ahead. Point number one, a divine revelation from verses 11 through 12. Point number two, a supernatural conversion from verses 13 through 17. 
And point number three, a glorious testimony from verses 18 through 24. Point number one, a divine revelation. Point number two, a supernatural conversion. Point number three, a glorious testimony. You'll see from our passage how Paul uses the irrefutable evidences of his conversion to show how Galatians, that the gospel he preached was not man's gospel, but God's gospel. And so, brothers and sisters, I pray this message will remind you of the grace you received in the miracle of your own conversion. Amen? How God brought you out from your sins and darkness into His marvelous light. I pray this message will stir afresh the power of the gospel onto salvation in you and point you to hope and trust in Him who is the source of our life and joy and hope. Guests and visitors, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for our Sunday service today, especially if you do not believe in Christ or if you do not know yourself as someone who is a follower of Christ. We welcome you. We've been praying for you. We pray that the Lord would bring you to church to join us in worshiping our God today. We pray that you will hear God's good news for you, which is the power to forgive you of your sins, which promises restoration and redemption and regeneration if you would repent and believe in Jesus Christ. We pray that you will hear his voice and trust him and find rest for your souls today. So without further ado, let's turn to our passage, Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24, which can be found on page 972 of the Blue Bibles around you. If you are new to the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers, and I just encourage you to keep your Bibles open for the entire duration of the sermon so that you will not get bored. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24 says this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who are apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And... They glorified God because of me. What is the evidence of true transformation? Point number one, a divine revelation from verses 11 through 12. As I shared above in last Sunday, Paul is addressing the churches of Galatia and the young new Christians in those churches who are falling victim to the false teachings of the Judaizers who are discrediting Paul's apostleship and the gospel that he was preaching. They were saying Paul wasn't a true apostle of Christ and that Paul's gospel was received secondhand through what others told him about Christ. More specifically, they contended that Paul's gospel was human in nature and that it had no independent authority or validity. 
Hence, according to them, Paul's gospel was one that pleased people by omitting some of the essential elements of the gospel, the need to be circumcised and keep the Old Testament laws. Pause right there and think about that. Does this sound like some other gospels you know? Legalism, moralism, works-based justification? And so Paul begins his apologetic for the truth of the gospel, which runs all the way through chapter 2. And he begins with a declarative statement, for I would have you know. Paul was saying, I want to make this perfectly clear to you. Hear me, what I am saying is important, for I would have you know. What I'm about to tell you is the truth. You weigh the evidence. You follow the logic. You make sense of what I am about to tell you. The gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Hence, Paul presents the thesis of his argument in presenting the truth of the gospel. The following verses will support this thesis, that the gospel Paul preached is not man's gospel, but God's gospel. That is the thesis, verses 11 and 12. And before we go any further, let me clarify what Paul's gospel is, which is God's gospel, which is our gospel, the gospel that you will hear this afternoon. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you will ever hear, that a holy God created all things in love. And at the height of his creation was man and woman created in his image for us to know his glory and his great love. And as such, the purpose of man and woman was to be united, to be one in relationship with God Himself, where we would experience true rest and true peace and true joy and true love. But given the choice to trust Him or disobedience, tempted by Satan's lies, man deliberately disobeyed God and rebelled against Him. And once sin entered into humanity, we and the world around us were entirely marred by sin because we chose to be our own gods. The consequence of sin, of course, was eternal separation from God, for a holy God cannot be together with sin. As a result, humanity was set on a path to death, deserving rightly the just judgment and condemnation for rejecting and cursing our own Creator God over and over and over and over again. We were helpless and incapable of saving ourselves. No way whatsoever to repair the severed relationship with God. No peace with God. No path of righteousness because of our inherent unrighteousness. In fact, we were so dead in our trespasses and sins, we did not even desire Him altogether. Dead in our trespasses and sins. But the good news is this, brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, God was not surprised by any of this. God was not caught off guard. He was not reactionary to our rejection of Him. God is all-knowing. God is always in control. And just as Paul reminds the Galatians in verse 15 that God Himself set Him apart before He was born and called Him by His grace, God had a plan from the very beginning before the foundation of the world to save a people for Himself who would come to know His amazing, redeeming, and gracious, merciful love. And his plan was to send his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man, to live the sinless life that we could not live, to die the substitute death we should have died on the cross. Jesus gave himself up as the perfect, full, and final sacrifice. 
He took upon himself the wrath of God we justly deserved. He suffered the punishment we would have suffered in eternal hell. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He became the curse on our behalf. Wait a minute now. That's not the end of the story though. The verse continues, So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming curse for us. God did this by raising Jesus back up again on the third day, just as it was written repeatedly that he would indeed die and rise again. Fulfilling the prophecies and promises of the old covenant, the old covenant had just been a guardian or a school teacher or a tutor all along, according to Galatians 3.24, to point us to him and our need of him until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Brothers and sisters, Christ conquers sin, Satan, and death once and for all. He ascended into heaven as a sovereign king who reigns over all still today, offering forgiveness of sins, offering new and eternal life to all who would repent and believe in him. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the hope of Jesus Christ that we cling to every single day of our lives until he returns. Amen? Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, the God of the universe did not leave us abandoned in our sins to ourselves to save ourselves, but Christ himself will return again to receive us into his eternal kingdom when he will restore all things new. What hope we have in Christ. Amen? And Jesus invites us today for anyone who will call on his name, the Bible says they will be saved. This is the reason why Jesus, who only lived a short 33 years of life on this earth, his public ministry was only three short years. He never wrote a book. He never commanded an army. He never ruled any nation, yet still today is known as the most significant person who ever lived. And he is worshipped, loved, and followed all around the world through every generation as the King and Lord for over 2,000 years. How is this possible? Because he truly lived and died and rose again from the grave as no person ever did. Hallelujah. Friends, there's not a single Christian who is truly a Christian who has been forced to believe and follow Christ against their wills. No, uh That's why no mere head knowledge of Him will do. That's why no mere religious acts will ever merit salvation. That's why no amount of good works will ever suffice and justify a sinful soul. That's why Paul says, I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't pursuing it. I wasn't learning about it. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation here literally means an unveiling, a laying bare, the removal of that which conceals or obscures a disclosure, revelation. Just as the Apostle Peter in Matthew 16 was revealed by God the Father to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, Paul and all who call on the name of Jesus as Lord have been revealed of who Jesus the Christ truly is. Not something Jesus said. Not something about Jesus. No, Jesus himself is the object of the revelation. Him and him alone. That's a huge difference. Not information about Jesus, but Jesus himself has been revealed to us. 
that he is not merely an old man in an old book, not simply a prominent prophet, not just a a religious rabbi, but truly the God-man, the Son of God, who is God, the promised Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Savior of our sinful souls. I love the book of Revelation because it foretells of the last days when Jesus Christ will be revealed for who he truly is before the whole entire watching world. Hence, the book of Revelation is called the revelation of Jesus Christ, not revelations. It's not future telling of what's going to happen. It's the full disclosure of Jesus Christ, the King and Lord and Savior. When Jesus is finally and fully revealed to all, the Bible says on that day, as Brother Bobby prayed, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord because it will be undeniable who he is, the King of kings and Lord of lords. But friend or visitor, why wait until that last day? Why not enjoy the blessing and joys of salvation by trusting in Him today? Why live in misery, rejecting Him and having the wrath of God on you? Why live with no hope, undermining Him? Why live with no purpose apart from Him when Christ freely offers Himself to you today? When all that is needed for you to receive Him is to simply accept Him for who He is. Just as when you get in a fight with a close friend or a family member, and the way you repair that relationship is what? You apologize. You confess that you are wrong. You confess to Him your sin and your need of Him. That's how you approach Christ. You acknowledge that you are a sinner, that you need a Savior in Him. And He offers you His grace because He already offered Himself up for you on the cross. He's already done that for you. Hebrews 1.1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So if you are here and you are not a Christian or are not sure that you are, Jesus invites you today through His Word. Jesus speaks to you today through His Word to repent of your sins, to turn from trusting in yourself or any other false gods in your life. You know that they will disappoint you. You know that they will not satisfy you. People cannot satisfy you. They will disappoint you. So, friend, believe that Jesus died and rose again for you, that you can have new life in Him. Trust in Him today and tomorrow with all of your worries and troubles and rest in Him now, today, and forevermore. If you want to know more about how you can follow Him, please talk to me or any of the pastors by the doors at the close of service or talk to someone who invited you to church today, or talk to someone smiling next to you. We encourage you to stick around after service. We love to share with you how Jesus revealed himself to us and changed our lives forever. We would love to do that with you. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, this word reminds us, as one commentator says, we may preach and teach and share the good news of Christ with others, but only God can soften a hardened heart and bring the light of divine truth to a darkened mind. And so if there's anyone here who is discouraged by the current trials you are going through in this life, be reminded of how our loving God revealed himself to you and made himself known to you. He has shown himself to you. He extends his love and grace and mercy to you. And he will, according to the word, bring you to completion. He will persevere you to the end. He is the author and finisher of our faith. 
The answer to your problems and struggles today, the solution to your addictions and your discontentment today isn't a raise, isn't a spouse, isn't a new house, isn't a new job or a new environment or a new church even. It is to behold Jesus for who he is today. That's the answer. That is always the answer. Pray and plead that he will reveal himself to you more clearly, more deeply, more truly this afternoon and that you may be renewed in who he is, of the vision of him to strengthen your walk, to empower your faith, to embolden your evangelism, to aliven your joy and hope in Him, to serve Him and serve others with faithfulness. Amen? As Paul argues, the first evidence of his transformation and the credibility of his apostleship and gospel is not man, but of God by a divine revelation. Well, Paul continues, the second evidence, point number two, is a supernatural conversion from verses 13 through 17. So in defending the truth of the gospel, Paul recalls his own supernatural conversion. Why? Why does he do this? Why does he talk about himself? Does he just simply like to talk about himself? No, because you can't trust the message if you can't trust the messenger. So again, Paul wasn't trying to toot his own horn by recalling for them the story of his dramatic conversion. No, that's not what he was doing. He was saying, you are crazy not to believe this gospel because I myself would not have believed it also if it had not been for God's intervention. In fact, Paul says, I myself am baffled that I am an apostle preaching his law-free, grace-full gospel. He says in verse 13, For you have heard of my formal life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. It was well known to all that Paul was once a devoted Pharisee, wasn't it? He was part of a group of Jewish leadership who falsified that Jesus was blasphemous, that Jesus was inciting an insurrection, a treason against the Roman government. And they forced Pilate into crucifying Jesus on the cross in Golgotha. Well, according to Acts 8.1, Paul was also the one who approved Stephen's stoning, his execution who was the first martyr of the New Testament church after Jesus' resurrection. As I said earlier, Paul was a persecutor of the church. He persecuted the church violently. He was a terrorist to Christians. Paul says he tried to destroy the church, doesn't he? If that was what he taught about Jesus' followers, he explains further why he was the least likely candidate to become a servant of Christ. In verse 14, Paul recalls his relationship to his peers and colleagues. It says in verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Not only was I a passionate persecutor, Paul was a prominent Pharisee. He was the best of the best, the creme de la creme. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, Paul explains if he had a reason to boast, if he had a reason to be confident in the flesh, he sure did. He says, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He was considered by all the Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a teacher and leader of the Jewish laws, a Pharisee. As for zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness, again, blameless. And listen, as for persecuting and killing Christians, it was only right in their eyes, in his eyes, and in the eyes of his contemporaries because they were seeking to quell, to destroy a godless, blasphemous rebellion against their laws as according to the Torah, the Old Covenant laws. Of course, Paul, before being revealed, the risen Christ, 
miss the point of the Mosaic law entirely. Righteousness doesn't come from self-righteousness. Justification can't be won by zealousness. Only a alien righteousness, only by Christ, only gift righteousness could ever merit such salvation, such righteousness. And so that's why Paul could say, following in Philippians 3, 7 through 8, whatever I gained, all that I had, all that I achieved, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Everything is loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or refuse in order that I may gain Christ. Brothers and sisters, Paul explains by a divine revelation of Jesus on the Damascus road, Paul experienced a supernatural conversion. He could not have come up with it on his own. He could not have even imagined it. He never even wanted it. But he came to know, verse 15 through first part of verse 16, that when God was pleased to reveal his son to me, that he was set apart before he was born, that he was called by his grace in order that he might preach Christ among the Gentiles. Goodness, so much beautiful theology, so much wonderful truth packed into those two verses to teach us about the nature of God's salvation. But let me just mention a few. One, that salvation is not based on our choice, but entirely on God's choice, His election, His predestination of us. Look at that first part of verse 15 again. But he who has set me apart before I was born. You see, Paul is recalling the pattern of how God chooses all of his servants. As our sister Danny read earlier, Isaiah 49. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Furthermore, Paul would go on later in writing other epistles of the same truth. In Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And there's so many more verses talking about how God chooses his people. Don't be offended by it. Listen to what Paul is saying. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when you understand that salvation is by Him and Him alone, you understand that since we did not do anything to merit or win salvation, we can do nothing to lose salvation. The next phrase of verse 15 says, Who called me by His grace. And that's explaining the effectual calling of God when He calls His own. This calling means the work of the Holy Spirit is working in us, producing in us the conviction of sin and bestowing in us the gift of repentance and faith. Again, it's God's work in us to secure salvation for us once and for all. It's not the type of calling where someone calls you and you don't answer because you are in the middle of watching a show on Netflix. Hello? It's not that kind of calling at all. When God calls, you pick up, you listen, you answer. Every Christian, in big or small ways, experienced a supernatural conversion. Why? Because you were brought from death to life, from darkness to light. Perhaps dramatic or not dramatic, it doesn't matter. The point is not how. The point is that a change took place. Sometime in our lives, they experienced, you experienced a transformation, a change within you. 
And it can be only explained by a revelation of Jesus Christ. You saw him for more than a mere prophet, more than a mere man, but as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Paul says, when God was pleased to reveal his Son in me, the ESV translation says, to me, but it should be in me. When the Lord God the Father was pleased to reveal himself in me, when I knew that I knew that I knew that he is who he says he is, I was forever changed from the inside out. The question for you, for anyone wondering if you or someone you know is truly saved, simply this, what evidence shows that you or he or she has been truly converted? Have you experienced divine revelation of Jesus? Have you experienced a supernatural conversion, a change, a transformation? I love the phrase that Paul uses to describe for us more of the nature of God's salvation. I love this, that he is pleased to reveal his son. To those whom God wills to save, God is pleased to do it. God desires to save his people. God desires for you to repent and believe in him. God is pleased to save his children. Amen? He is not some angry, distant God out there that every time we do something wrong, he's throwing lightnings. No, he is pleased to save his own. So don't hesitate. Don't delay. Don't let another day pass without responding to his invitation. There is no more revelation. There is no new revelation. The Bible is complete. The canon is closed. Everything we need for salvation is in Christ, is in this book. Look to him. Call on him. Trust in his sufficient salvation. You'll notice in the next phrase in verse 16 that God revealed Jesus to Paul in order that he might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul's particular calling was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Whereas previously salvation was kept only for the Jews in order to preserve the messianic lineage where Jesus would be born, but after his death and resurrection, after Jesus' death and resurrection, upon fulfillment of God's requirement of righteousness in Christ's finished work on the cross, God's original covenant to Noah, to Abraham, to Jacob, to Isaac, to David, to bless a people as many as the stars, as many as the grains of sands on the beach had been instituted and extended to people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Hence, you can see why Paul was so critical and adamant and serious, even harsh against the enemies of the true gospel who are seeking to reverse the gospel, who are seeking to undo Christ's work. Paul saw and embraced his divine calling to preach this ancient gospel to the Gentiles, the purpose in which he was saved. You have seen Paul write such words in 1 Corinthians 9.16, Woe to me! Damnation to me if I do not preach the gospel. And in 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you. I determined to share nothing among say nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, when Christ saves us, he does not save us to enjoy cushy, comfortable lives here on earth. Eternal rest is coming, but we have no time to rest today. Vacations are nice. Let me tell you, vacations are nice. But resting is in Christ, and final rest is with Christ in heaven. Just read Hebrews chapter 4. Here on earth, we got work to do. Amen? We got work to do. Dear beloved church family, how has God saved you for a specific purpose? 
How has God called you to serve him specifically? And are you faithfully, joyfully, persevering in the calling he has ordained for you from before you were born? You were created. You were called. You were set apart for a specific purpose, not just Paul, for all of us. Dr. Timothy George says this caution for pastors, and it can be applied to you as a church member the same. One of the major reasons for ministerial burnout in churches today is a preoccupation with the demands and tasks of pastoral work to the exclusion of quality time alone with God. Pastors or church members are too busy to give serious and prayerful preparation of their sermons or to their service, and those people will have no power or depth or joy in their preaching or in their serving. If their study is a lounge, chill, relaxed, the pulpit or your service will be an impertinence, an offense to God. So brother or sister, if you are serving faithfully, thank you so much. But if you are not relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, if you are not joyfully filling your heart and your mind with this word, then your service to God is offensive to God. How are you serving him in the pleasure that he provides? How are you serving him in the pleasure and the joy that he provides? Did you notice in the next phrase at the end of verse 16 and 17, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who are apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. What does this mean? And why does Paul bring up this historical timeline following his conversion? Is Paul saying simply he doesn't need anyone or any other Christians to support him or to encourage him? Clearly not. Verses 18 and 19 shows us that's not true. And verse 16 and 17 never says Paul was isolated and being a hermit. He just explains immediately after his conversion. He did not go to Jerusalem, which was the central hub of the New Testament church where the, all the apostles were, in order, why? That he can spend the next three years in obscurity, preparing and praying and relearning the scriptures as according to the gospel, he was revealed by Christ. Someone asked, what's the significance of Paul going to Arabia? It just means Paul went into obscurity where he was not known at all by anyone. Paul had been a high-profile Pharisee, remember? And so he wanted to lay low. He didn't want any recognition. He had a lot to think through and pray through. So he spent time with God in the word faithfully sharing his faith with others when he had opportunity, faithfully reading his word, studying and praying and preparing for the ministry that the Lord had called him to. I and many others from an early age who aspired to be ministers of the gospel, here's biblical precedence. No matter how gifted or talented or useful you think you are or others think you are for God's kingdom, here it is, a season of obscurity is good and necessary for ministers of the gospel for preparation. When I think back on my three and a half years in seminary, whew, those were dark days. Those were hard days. And the following 15 years of training for ministry and waiting until I became a lead pastor. My goodness, I can't say I loved those very hard seasons of getting humbled and waiting, but I can say Without those ears, I would never have been ready to lead New Covenant Baptist Church today. The Lord knows you. The Lord has you, even in seasons of obscurity, to sharpen you, to prepare you for the work ahead. 
So brothers and sisters, how is the Lord preparing you? Are you making the most of it? In seemingly discouraging, disappointing, lonely days, how do you see the Lord working in you? He is. Do you trust Him? Do you find joy in Him? Are you in the Word? Are you in prayer? Are you growing? Are you serving? Are you good waiting in obscurity? Don't wait for that day somebody recognizes you to be a deacon or a pastor. Be one right now without the title. Amen? Be a faithful discipler now, not when Jesus comes back, right now, when no one takes notice of you. If you are, how might the Lord use you in six months, in a year, in two, five, ten years to use you to advance the gospel to whom he has called you for? Pray about it. Talk to a pastor or a fellow church member about it. Work diligently and intentionally toward it. Third and final evidence of true conversion. Very short point. Point number three, a glorious testimony. Look first at verses 18 through 20, which says this. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Seems like a lot of detail here, but the point is simple. Paul spent ample time in preparation. He was not a lone ranger. Paul says after three years, he went to Jerusalem to visit Peter. The word visit means to get to know Peter. Paul details that he stayed with Peter for 15 days, right? So what that means is long enough to get well acquainted, but not long enough to learn or acquire a degree with Peter. It was long enough for them to establish their partnership in the gospel ministry, but Paul is clearly establishing his independence, his God-given authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is not an apostle because of Peter or any other apostles, but only because Christ had called him to be. Paul also mentions he also met James, the Lord's brother. Although James, the Lord's brother, not the Jameses who are Jesus' two disciples, but this James was not a believer until after Jesus was resurrected. This was the half-brother of Jesus. James would eventually become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And the significance of Paul meeting with Peter and James is a simple matter of two respected brothers confirming Paul's apostleship and the gospel as to leave no doubt regarding the credibility of Paul. The Galatian false teachers were accusing Paul of his credibility, right? It must have been so strong and so sharp that Paul makes sure to insert verse 2 right after that. In what I'm trying to tell you before God, I do not lie! Exclamation mark. Paul is saying, check the sources. Check with Peter and James. This happened. They vouch for me. And perhaps a subtle, be quiet, shut up to those who are talking smack about him. That's what's going on here in verse 18 through 20. Well, the main point of this section is in the next verses. Look with me to verse 21 and 22 and we're wrapping up. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Here's verifiable proof. Here's undeniable credence. Paul was still yet unknown as a preacher. Paul was still yet being trusted by the churches of Judea, meaning he wasn't yet the premier pick for the special guest preacher list. No one was saying, hey, be sure to book Paul for next year's national conference. No, that wasn't going on. The only evidence that mattered was obvious to all of Paul's credibility. Verse 23 and 24. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. 
and they glorified God because of Paul. They glorified God because of Paul. The persecutor turned preacher didn't care at all whether he was known by all at all because he was known by the one who is all in all. Brothers and sisters, what convicting lesson for us. Are you fine serving Christ? Are you okay preaching the gospel? Are you well serving his church in obscurity? What evidence proves that you are? They glorified God because of Paul. What is the fruit of your ministry? Do they glorify God because of your service? Do they glorify Jesus because of your faithfulness? Can you say, even if no one takes notice, that's okay, because Jesus is my all in all? Can you truly sing this afternoon as we're about to finish, all I have is Christ, and that's more than enough for me. All I have is Christ, and that's all enough for me. Brothers and sisters, what evidence proves you are His? A divine revelation, a supernatural conversion, a glorious testimony. What exceeding joy and gift to know that He has revealed His Son to you and to me. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You for the gift of salvation that when we were least expecting, You were pleased to reveal Your Son to us, in us, and called us for a purpose to glorify you. Father, use this church, the members of this church, to be bold in our evangelism, to be intentional in our discipleship, to be passionate in our love for one another, so that those out there who do not know you will see how different we are because of your grace. Father, help us to be faithful to you in honoring you, even at times, even in seasons of difficulty, even in obscurity. Help us to prepare well for the day that you would call us to serve you every single day until you return. We love you. We thank you for this word. In Jesus' name, amen.